0: The 1953 marriage of the philosopher Anthony Appiah's African father and British mother helped inspire the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And stories of his multiracial, multinational family infuse his thinking now on subjects like human identity, ethics in a world of strangers, and how moral revolutions happen. As part of our Civil Conversations project, I wanted to hear how he might weigh in on moral confusions and stalemates in the contemporary U.S., Now an American citizen, Anthony Appiah believes that we are called to nothing less than managing the republic together. And his prescriptions for this are down to earth. Our starting point with others, he says, doesn't have to be dialogue. It can be conversation in the old-fashioned sense of simple association, seeking familiarity around mundane human qualities of who we are.
1: Sometimes people think that, you know, the only way to deal with these big differences between religions or around moral questions is to kind of face up to the difference directly. But I think often, as it were, sidling up to it is better, and sidling up to it can be done by not facing Islam, but facing, you know, Layla and Ahmed and Muhammad. With whom you don't talk about religion most of the time, you talk about soccer or you talk about rock music or whatever it is you you have in common as an interest.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Kwame Anthony Appiah is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Philosophy at Princeton University. I spoke with him in 2011. He's gained renown in and beyond philosophical circles for his readable books, including Cosmopolitanism and The Honor Code. That 2010 book looked at the ingredients of moral change in various societies across time. The end of foot binding in China, slave trading in the British Empire, and of dueling as an honorable way to resolve disputes. Every culture has examples like this, practices that were once part and parcel of respectability, but of which later generations ask, how could we possibly have lived that way? Both of Anthony Appiah's own parents came from leading families in their respective countries, but many experienced their union as morally unthinkable. He grew up between Great Britain and the country we now know as Ghana. His mother was the daughter of a former British Chancellor of the Exchequer, and her marriage to a black African was one of two interracial unions that rocked British society and became the stuff of international headlines. I mean, as a background to your work on how moral change happens, it's fascinating that in in, in some sense you and your family lived a profound shift in cultural perception and mores, it's something that was the subject of real condemnation um, mm-hmm. that, that changed within a generation, really.
1: It did. And I think if you live within a change like that, it can often seem less... Puzzling to you than it does to all the people around you. So, I know that uh, when we went as children to visit my mother's mother in England, my grandmother, my English grandmother, w- when we sort of stepped off the plane, the newspapers would always say, "So you're leaving him, are you?" <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> and she would say, "No, I've just come to see my mother with my with with her grandchildren." Oh. Um, I think there was a kind of assumption that it couldn't. Possibly work, or at least that it would be a better story if it didn't work. So, mm. so the fact that they um, they you know lived together and and until my father died, and then my mother stayed in Ghana until she died. I think that perhaps would have surprised some of the people who were against it at the start. But mm. they never seemed to have had any doubt that it was the right thing to do. And I, I I do think that a significant part of that had to do both with the fact that they their own families were supportive on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, And with the fact that they were both about Christians and I think that the sense that um, they both had was that you couldn't possibly as a Christian be opposed to uh, interracial marriage and that therefore it couldn't possibly be wrong was very strong.
0: It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And
1: very sustaining for them, I think the sense mm-hmm. that you know, when people criticise something you do, and if, if there's enough of them, you can come to wonder whether they're right. But I don't think they ever had any doubt uh, about the rightness of what they were doing.
0: And how did you gravitate towards philosophy when you were at Cambridge?
1: Um, well, I, you know, you can tell the story in various ways. At the time, I uh, so I went to university to be a medical student. Uh, and I had always thought I was going to be a doctor from very young. I think because I loved my own doctor when I was a child. Mm. But I think I can fairly say that I absolutely hated it. Um, <laughs> I, I found it really, really boring. And um, so I scraped through the first year of <laughs> person almost being thrown out for being uh, incompetent, and changed to philosophy, which I immediately loved. I, I loved um, the sort of challenge of sitting down with all kinds of questions whether they were in ethics or metaphysics or epistemology and st- struggling to think them through uh, by reading what other people had written about them and by uh, focusing on them deep into the night uh, myself so I, I i sort of came home to philosophy and i think it had you know if you if you ask why why this is sort of connected with the religion thing because the reason i started reading philosophy in the first place was because as a young evangelical teenager I got interested both in theology and philosophy because, you know, if you're a serious young person. That's what it's about. That's what that's what it's about.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know if you know that we've changed that this program's been around for 7 years, but it it was originally called Speaking of Faith and uh
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh we've recently changed the name to On Being. And it's it's partly as a recognition that what we're tracing when we, you know, we say that we trace meaning religion, ethics, and ideas, it, there is this core animating question of what it means to be human and that that, in fact, is there in the religious enterprise, although it's not restricted to it.
1: Right. No, I think that that was the, at the heart of most of what I've done in philosophy in the last decade or more, uh-huh. really, has been a, a preoccupation with, with that central question in ethics, which is, you know, what is it for a human life to go well what is it for one to have a life of significance uh, what is it to have the kind of life that you can look back on at the end and say that was that was a life worth living a life well lived and you know my my kind of uh, Christmas cracker version of my philosophy—the thing that I would put on a piece of paper inside a Christmas cracker if I had to—is—is is that everything's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, everything's more complicated than you, than you thought at first. And it turns out that when you're trying to think about what it is to lead a life of significance, what it leads, what it is for human life to go well, um, many, many things are relevant. And in that sense, and in that sense, think, it's a very complicated project. And right. so, you're not going and to run a out of subjects. Surprising, unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think almost anything that someone says to you, you know, it's, it could be a kind of parlor game. Someone could say to you, "So here's something that can't have anything to do with the meaning of human life," and and your task <laughs> is to explain why it does.
0: Yeah. So, so with this perspective of yours, this uh, interest of yours. Um, And also the work you've done in recent years with the notions of cosmopolitanism and honor. Um, I kind of want to ask a a big wide-open question here, About there's been a lot of divisiveness and rancor in American life, certainly in our political life. It's waxed and waned over the last 10 years. And then in recent months, we have some new divisions. We have some new... uh, players, you know, and which create new divides We have Tea Party on one side, right? And the liberal elites Mm -hmm. on the other. I mean, these aren't new, but the the categories have shifted a bit. And I think it feels to many people, I'm not sure this is true, but it feels like the rancor has gotten worse. So I just wonder how have you, when you look at these kinds of hostilities and tensions in US culture, and in terms of how we navigate difference or fail to, for example, you Mm -hmm. know, what do you see in terms of the causes of gridlock, what's gone wrong? Or also, where do you see sources of different possibilities? start to talk to me about that.
1: Well, I, I think that, I mean, the first thing I want to do is sort of confess that I, you know, um, like everybody else, I think, who cares about what happens in our society and follows what happens in societies, I get pretty cross myself sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get mad at people. Um, I try very hard not to, you know, turn that anger into immediately uh, abusing them or uh, sending out an angry email declaring them to be the spawn of the devil but uh, because I <laughs> because it isn't helpful uh, <laughs> even, if it, even
0: if you think that might be true even,
1: <laughs> even if even, if you think about it, and, even right. if, and even if it makes you feel terrific for a moment I think right. that you know these are I'm sure other people have suggested this to you but I mean w- one of the things that's changed is that um, more people can express themselves Without any editing, right, than be- than ever before in right. human history, um, and not just with that. Now, one thing an editor does is actually mean that there's a distance in time between your f- the first thing you say <laughs> yes. and when it goes out.
0: Yeah, you know and, that's a really and- simple but very <laughs> significant observation. I well.
1: Think. And it is, it's a large part of the problem. Everybody who talks about, you know, internet etiquette and flaming and all that says, basically the equivalent of what my, actually my grandmother used to say to me when I was about to send off an angry letter was she'd say, why don't you put that under your pillow overnight and mm. <laughs> see see how you feel in the morning? And the trouble is that uh, the, the the send button doesn't come with a 24-hour delay uh, built into it.
0: So we have all this raw emotion flying around.
1: Um, also, we have raw emotion without one of the things that normally constrains its expression, which is the presence of the other person. Right. It's, harder, it's harder to use the kind of language that people routinely use on the web to someone's face, even a stranger, um, but especially someone you know. Uh, if they're sort of physically present, we, we get feedback from their face. Once you move from email to email to Skype, you get back the human face. Hmm you get back the shocked look in the eyes of the other person.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the philosopher of identity and moral difference, Anthony Appiah. When I spoke with him in 2011, the Green Bay Packers had just beaten the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl. Anthony Appiah used that game to illustrate the difficulties that we often face on issues large and small when we talk across differences.
1: There's another set of things going on. Again, this is I'm, none of this is original to me, which is a kind of... Um, The consumer choice dimension of the new technologies, which we're inclined to celebrate, uh, does mean that it's hard to have a public square. What you get is a million private squares. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to run a republic together of 300 million people, you've got to have somewhere where you're having a kind of general conversation that can be attended to by everybody and where you can try to agree on what the basic parameters are of the things that you agree about, the things, you know, the, is, is the planet's average temperature going up or not, and also <laughs> right. the things that you disagree about. Um, you know, is it or is it not okay to uh, terminate uh, pregnancies in the first trimester? And, but if you have only... Conversations among the people who think that it isn't okay, and then other conversations among people who think it is okay, uh, you're just going to get a permanent uh, blockage. Now, again, I want to begin by confessing that you know I don't spend an awful lot of my time trying to seek out people
0: who are different um, from you, who are different
1: from me (laughs) uh, on these topics. I don't really Mm -hmm. want to hang out with with people Mm who who are homophobic, for example. But, um. One of the most powerful reasons why America is less homophobic than it was when I came to it nearly 30 years ago is because uh, lots of gay people came out and started talking to people who weren't very comfortable around gay people. And suddenly those people discovered that you could be comfortable (laughs) around gay people. Mm -hmm. And then they got angry that other people were not being nice to them. So... There is a difficulty, I think, which is how do we create places where people who disagree about these things, which are important disagreements, you have to come together in what I call using them. I use the metaphor of conversation. And the point about conversation is yes. that it doesn't have a point.
0: But you also, you're uh, using the word conversation as something larger than words that pass between two people. I mean, define Uh, uh, conversation, first of all.
1: Well, those sort of, you know, you're sitting down with a friend in a bar and you're chatting and it's about the Super Bowl or it'll be about Egypt. Um, You're not talking to your friend about the Super Bowl because it makes any difference to what happens. The Super Bowl is over. (laughs) You're not trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not changing anything. Um, Nor is, you know, I came into this studio with a Steelers Cap on as it happens, (laughs) um, which I confess before the nation. But um, I'm not going to have – if I talk to somebody who's a fan of those other guys from Wisconsin, um, I'm not expecting them at the end of the conversation to say, you're right. You know, the Steelers are definitely the team I should follow. They're definitely the better team. The, the object of the exercise is discuss it, talk about it, not to come to some kind of agreement, not to change each other, just to be together, enjoy mm-hmm. one another's company. And if you have that background of relationship between individuals and communities that is, in that sense, conversational, then when you have to talk about the things that do divide you, you have a, a better platform Uh, You you can begin with the assumption that you like and respect each other even though you don't agree about everything and you can maybe build on that and you can know that at the end of the conversation it's quite likely that you'll both think something pretty close to what you both thought at the start but you may at least have a deeper appreciation for the other person's um, point of view and that turns out to make it easier to accept the outcome whether it's the outcome you favour or the outcome the other person favours. People who've been heard uh, and whose position is understood, this is one of the great virtues of democracy when it's working, tend to be more willing to accept an outcome that they wouldn't have chosen because they feel they've had voice, they've participated in the process. One of the reasons why those who say that we might have done a better job with abortion if we'd settled it through the legislature rather than through the courts is, I think, because if we'd settled it through legislatures, we'd have had to have kept, as it were, talking to one another. Uh, whereas if, if you declare something to be a constitutional right, that's sort of a conversation stopper.
0: And then you move on with what has been decided.
1: Right. And if more of that mess, which is what a conversation is like, a conversation is not about principles and coming to complicated agreements. It's just about hearing all the mess. Uh, if more of that mess had been represented, we'd probably we'd have a much messier legislative situation. But we might have more consensus about about the rights that we had uh, arrived at in that way. Um, right. And you,
0: I mean, you've, you've used language like conversation in its older meanings about habits of coexistence, association, living together.
1: Right. Yes. And I think that, you know, if you think about the background of endless conversation with your friends that is the sort of texture of your relationship with them, it's against that background that you can have friends, you know, no, no group of friends agrees about everything. Right. And some of the things you disagree about are serious, right? I have friends who are under the mistaken conviction that it was a good thing that the Packers won the Super Bowl, and I have to accept that. <laughs> uh, and this is a serious is a serious disagreement. But more importantly, I have friends who are Catholics, and I have friends who are um, atheists who do sedas once a year, and I have right. friends who are Methodists, uh, and I have friends who are Unitarians of the sort that are really not very r- believing, and so on. And those are serious differences. And if we only came together to talk about theology, we wouldn't have much of a relationship. Mm -hmm. If we only came together to try and settle the things we disagree about, we we wouldn't be getting along. It's the background of sort of endless shared conversation, which you agree about this, you disagree about that. Some of the things you disagree about are important. Some of the things you agree about are important. Uh, And then when you come to a moment of serious disagreement, you can handle – the fact and you can as it were accept the outcome even if it's not the one you chose uh, you would have chosen if it had been up to you so now that that's a picture of a kind of successful interpersonal relationship how right. you turn that into a social practice yes. uh, especially that's I'm not saying that's easy but one of one of the things I think that is required is a willingness to feel that it would be good to be in dialogue with fellow citizens of all sorts,
0: and I think—I I mean, think—just going back to a few minutes ago, what you said, I think the way you talked about how a technology, which you know is not good or bad in itself, it's a tool, but that in fact the forms we have for even just expressing what we believe in a way are taking that personal dimension away from it, or creating, as you said, many many squares rather than a public yeah. square.
1: And they are the kind of communicational equivalent of um, being permanently fortissimo. Uh, People Uh are shouting at each other Uh all the time. The conversation can be quiet and murmuring and (laughs) and, uh, you can lower the temperature in a conversation as well as raising it.
0: thought, also as we were speaking, is that in, there's a way in which, um, the, again, the ways we express these opinions, um, it's not just that we don't necessarily see other human beings or aren't necessarily interacting with other human beings, but also that difference itself becomes more abstract, right, in, in the absence yes. of those relationships. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you've written a lot about difference as an issue in, in the human yeah. condition,
1: yeah, I think that that the, the you're absolutely right that the key change is when you come from thinking of an issue as being about homosexuals and muslims and come to think of it as being about you know uncle John and aunt Mary and cousin Ahmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um it, it's not muslims, it's this particular people now and um it sort of gives it a kind of concreteness. Um, Sometimes people think that, you know, the only way to deal with these big differences between religions or, or, or around moral questions is to kind of face up to the difference directly. But I think often... As it were, sidling up to it right. uh, is better and sidling up to it can be done by, by not facing Islam but facing, you know, Layla and Ahmed and Mohammed with whom you don't talk about religion most of the time. You talk about soccer or you talk about, you know, rock music or whatever it is you, you have in common as an interest. And the thing that binds me across, say, religious boundaries to people on other sides of of religious boundaries, isn't one thing, right? Right. What, what what binds me to Islam is my Sunni friends and my Shia friends, my Ismaili friends, uh, my cousins who happen to be Muslim, and strangers who, whom I've come to know whom and like who are Muslim. And what I have in common with these very diverse group of Muslims that I know is different in each case. And so that breaks up the sense of them as a kind of monolithic them.
0: Right. And I, mean, uh, I think this is a point you make also coming out of your own life, your own childhood and your parents that that identity that all of our identities are composed of so many different have so many different yes. aspects to them.
1: Yeah.
0: We 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 are what we are in our professional lives, we we are parents, we are children, we are friends, we are lovers. And I'm just, you know, as I as I think about that, I realize that another thing that happens in a lot of these where we've defined our differences in our public life we act as though people are truly defined by that position on that issue.
1: Right. So one category that I would like to remove from the conversation of my liberal friends is evangelical Christian mm. uh, because the, the range of views and feelings and experiences that is encompassed by uh, those Americans who think of themselves as born again is incredible. And they're, uh, they're, some of them are you know, very actively um, pro-gay marriage, some of these people that are called who have been born again. Um, some of them are very active in struggles against capital punishment mm-hmm. uh, out of their religious convictions. So the idea that they're a kind of monolithic block, and even when you meet someone who, as it were, fits all the stereotypes that uh, liberals often have of evangelical Christians, um, you know, she's also going to be someone who turns out to have an interest in in a kind of music that you like, or <laughs> or, or to be a, a devout consumer of the same, you know, trash fiction that you read, or whatever it is. And once those links are built, if we can build a society where there are these cross links across the identities that are currently dividing us, then, as I say, it will it will stop being about them, and it'll start being about you know, John and Mary and Layla and Ahmed. And that's just psychologically very different.
0: As always, you can listen to this conversation with Anthony Appiah again, download it, or send it to friends through our website, onbeing.org. There you can find out more about our Civil Conversations project, an ongoing project to subvert deep divides in American life. We're in planning now for the next season. Send us your thoughts on guests and topics at onbeing.org. You'll find all of our previous Civil Conversations shows and events at onbeing.org slash ccp to do. Coming up, Anthony Epiot tells of a simple human encounter that changed his life and what his work reveals about the force of feeling honored or, by contrast, humiliated as a stumbling block not merely to civility but to social progress. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment.
1: On Being's Civil Conversations Project is supported in part by funding from the Noor Foundation, exploring meaning and commonality in human experience. Online at NoorFoundation.com.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the Ghanaian British American philosopher Anthony Appiah. He's gained renown for his work on subjects like human identity, ethics in a world of strangers, and how moral revolutions happen. We've been exploring his ideas on untangling moral confusions in the contemporary U.S. I think that, you know, America prides itself on a place of diversity, and it it surely is. Although I, I get a feeling that diversity can be many things. It can be racial, it can be ethnic, it can be social. But then when it comes to these moral issues, there's a feeling that really we should all agree. Right? Or that, yes. that kind of difference is is intolerable and has to be overcome. And you know, to do justice to the sweep of your work, um, you really do describe human flourishing writ large as, as having difference at its core, not as something that is overcome, but yes. as something that is always there and part of vitality.
1: Yes. So I think that part of the sort of small L in the old fashioned sense of the word liberal, which has somewhat got lost in our recent conversations, mm-hmm. but part of the liberal tradition is the thought that um, – and I like to say this is the part of the liberal tradition that Jesse Helms would have agreed with. But, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm the, waiting. The, I can't <laughs> wait to hear what this is. Well, <laughs> is, that, is that part of what it is for your life to go well is for you to be living by standards – that you believe in.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Uh And the reason Jesse Helms could agree with that is because this is essentially the great thought of the Protestant Reformation (laughs) and forcing people to do what you think is the right thing when they don't is a kind of violation. And that means that the way you have to deal with people with whom you disagree about what's right and wrong is to try and persuade them. Uh, Unless they pose a threat, I mean a threat of harm Mm -hmm. uh, to somebody when obviously you have to stop people who pose direct threats of harm. But that's also part of the liberal tradition, the thought that the state is entitled to protect people from harm from other people. But it isn't entitled to enforce a, a view about all these central being questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want a state that tells us what the right answer is to the, to the question, what God is like. We, we want a state that has some, you know, respect for our conscience, uh, that thinks that it matters whether people are living by the standards they believe in. And that means that um, agreement is fine, but it matters how you get it. <laughs> mm. So... That thought, that thought that we, that what are we doing together is we're we're managing the republic together. We're fellow citizens of a great republic which we're trying to run together. We have to think of each other, therefore, as entitled to this great responsibility. We have to respect one another. And respecting one another means understanding that people can conscientiously come to a different view. I think if our conversations were richer, we might actually have more consensus than we do about many questions. You do, yes, I do, but mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think we're ever going to come to one hundred percent consensus about the sorts of things that divide us now, and I don't think we need to. What we need to do is to figure out how to live together while disagreeing about mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had told me when I first came to this country in the early eighties that uh, a majority of people under the age of twenty-five uh in, 19, in 2011 would think that uh, in, this includes uh, conservative uh, kids uh, under the age of 25, would think that it's kind of self-evident that uh, gay people who want to ought to be allowed to be married. You'd, I, I would have told you you were out of your tree. I would have mm. told you you were crazy. Good. And yet that's what's happened.
0: I wonder if... Um I wonder if there's a tension or if you could talk about the tension between you as a philosopher and you as a human being who, who happens to be gay. And um, uh, so this this issue of same-sex union, for example, is mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. no abstraction to you. And when you, a little while ago you talked about... Your extended circles of friendship, there are all kinds of difference. And presumably, in that large extended circle of uh, friendship and family, which for you is global, um, there may be people who, um, on a level of principle, uh, don't approve of your sexual orientation or don't don't believe it that well,
1: yeah don't have to go way way out okay. uh, i have a, i have i have an even a Pentecostal sister i can assure you, oh, that you she do. doesn't think that that it's okay yeah i so, mean she, lo- she she loves me uh-huh. and she know, and she she knows that god loves me so so she has to think about it against that background but uh but it doesn't follow from that that she has to think it's okay
0: mhm so how do your you know when sort of the rubber meets the road then in terms of your mm. what, how you think about this as a philosopher and you know the ideals you have for our public life then then how is that informed even more and what have you learned through then those kinds of interactions
1: Well I think that growing up as I did between um you know post-colonial Ghana and uh, and and Britain uh, growing up in in a family which on one side had people who slaughtered uh, sheep in order to deal with witchcraft and on the other side contained um, you know anti religious atheists <laughs> uh who would have been very astonished to find that they were r- related by marriage to people who believed in witchcraft um y- what you learn is that uh you know you make up your own mind about these things i know where i stand on all these questions but you live perfectly happy with people who have different views about them you know there's a very beautiful moment in in the english uh, original season uh, i think it's the second season of skins this this controversial yes, my thing my daughter's about been watching that. i haven't watched it well well i haven't seen the american one and i gather some people think it isn't as good but in the english one um it's a very moving moment when there's there's a young uh, gay English kid, white English kid, and a young Muslim English kid who's of Pakistani origin, and they're best friends, and and the the Pakistani kid who's straight knows that his best friend is is gay, and you know, he's still his best friend, and he's having a birthday party, and he, the friend says to him, "I'm not coming in because I you promised to tell your parents that I was gay, and you you haven't done it, and I've just this is it, you know, this is my ultimate, I'm not coming in," and So he just stands outside and finally the father comes out and says, what are you doing outside? And he said, I'm not coming in because you're, I've forgotten what his name is, but your son won't tell you that I'm gay. And the man says, looks at him and says, you know, Islam means a lot to me. And when I go to mosque on Fridays, it's one of the great moments in my week. He said, but I don't understand everything. And one thing I do understand is that you're my son's best friend. So please come in. People do that all the time. Right. They, he didn't say it's OK. He didn't say Islam is wrong. He didn't say Islam permits this. He said, you're my son's best friend and you you have to come to the party. So I think in, in a way that's about being, you know, a lot of politicians would say, well, that's just a perfect example of arguing for unprincipled behavior.
0: Right. Relativism. <laughs> yeah. Relativism. Everything's OK. He's not,
1: Everything's okay. But he's not a relativist. No. He's, he's saying, I think, you know, my, my religion teaches that this is wrong and I'm going to have to deal with that somehow. But I'm not going to deal with it by being um, unkind to my son's best friend. And that kind of dealing with com- the complexity of life and the complexity of the world, given that we have these differences, is something that human beings at their best are very good at.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, the Ghanaian-British-American philosopher, Anthony Appiah. In his 2010 book, The Honor Code, he analyzed the human dynamics that brought about unprecedented moral and social change in various societies across time. He found, somewhat to his own surprise, that the notion of honor played a role every time arguments about the wrongness of slavery, for example, didn't win the day alone. Slavery had to cease to be seen as an honorable pursuit. Human morality, as Anthony Appiah sees it, is always fundamentally linked with social identity. It always comes back to whether we are able to respect ourselves and the dignity of others, even those who differ greatly from us. One place this led me to go in my own thinking was I spent a lot of time thinking and talking to other people about fear as a factor in our public life. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. fear as an animator of some of this rancor and the depth of division and the caricatures. But you know, you also to talk about honor. In some place, you talk about how the you know the the opposite of feeling honored is feeling humiliated. Uh-huh. You know, that also strikes me as a dynamic in this culture that that is also there in some of this digging into the
1: trenches. Absolutely. I mean, just to uh, underline the centrality of the moral centrality of, of, of humiliation, I think that if you ask people who've been tortured what stays with them, it's not actually the physical memory of pain so much as the sense of humiliation hmm. It's the sense that what you're doing in torture is humiliating people. Um, and that's why it's so terrible, because humiliation is a terrible thing to impose upon people. And if we we live in a society where it's hard to maintain self-respect if you don't have a job.
0: yeah,
1: It's hard to maintain self-respect if you can't hold birthday parties for your children. These are small things... I suppose mm-hmm. but they're part of what goes together to make a life worth living. So humiliation whether the intentional humiliation of people which is I have to say that is part of what's least attractive to me about the world of sort of you know the nasty side of cable is these people set out to humiliate other people. What a what a ghastly thing to be doing. But unfortunately we, we couldn't remove the humiliation in the world simply by getting rid of the intentional humiliation because people feel – lose the basis of self-respect when they lose their job and they can't get another one and they feel that the skills they have and their, their willingness to work is sort of being ignored uh, in the social reality they live in. We face this, of course, at the moment as a society. But imagine what it's like to be a young Egyptian, an educated young Egyptian, where you know we think 10% unemployment is terrible. Yeah. We're talking about a population of young em- people who have ambitions for themselves, who want to make families, live lives, participate in the life of their community, who half of them can't get jobs.
0: Not at all. Uh, so, ever. <laughs> at all. So, you know, you have looked at... Um examples in history in different places of profound change that happened, foot binding in China, sort of practices that Mm -hmm. had been a norm that ended dueling, uh, slavery in the British Empire. And I think another thing that you point out that's very interesting is that, let me see, this is what you wrote, um, to end one practice as the anti-foot binding campaigners in China grasped, you need to start another Mm-hmm. Um so if we I don't know let's say if you'd written a fifth chapter in that book or a fifth example if 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 we looked at uh the decline of american political discourse as as a moral problem mm-hmm. um you know what what practices might you propose or how would you think about the starting of new practices i don't know
1: Well i do think that um some some years ago People had the idea of starting sort of neighborhood conversations all around the country in which people came together who were not all of the same political position. yeah and, and that didn't take off. But it's a good idea. And um, I think that if I were in more regular conversation with—I'm uh, relatively liberal, so with— uh, more conservative people, then I think I would be better placed to understand what I should say to my congressman, who's a Democrat, about you know when he should and when he shouldn't as it were fight the other side, when he should work together and when he should just continue to hold his own. so we need to practice it ourselves, but I think also we need to kind of model it. Um, right. This there, there was a there was this discussion. You remember uh, around the State of the Union about uh, whether the people of the different parties should sit intermingled. Mm. Um, now I think that discussion was conducted as if the issue were about symbolism, and and of course it is partly <laughs> the State All of the right. Union is about symbolism, but 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 if they were sitting together more often than talking. More often, when the cameras were off, um, just about maybe nothing. They, right about just if they about went to The doctor yeah. and how
0: their children were doing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and socializing more, e- eating together. Um, uh, that would create the thing that some people criticise, which is a kind of a beltway culture. But you need a beltway culture if you're to run a, a bipartisan society, a society that has two large political parties that are roughly uh, equal in scale. But you need a sense that, look, we have different views, but we are, our job is to work together Mm. to make the country work. And I shouldn't require my rather liberal congressman, (laughs) I shouldn't require him to perform a kind of pantomime of hostility Mm. to Republicans with whom he and I disagree. I should require him rather to stick for our principles and to negotiate around them and to see what can be done with the business of the republic. One reason why people do what, you know, Sarah Palin is now doing uh, and uh, if I were a republican, I would give you my favorite example of a democrat who does this. One reason they're doing that is because it works. Because people – support it and uh, we have to learn mm. to that support. in supporting that in supporting mm. that we're not helping us. we're not even helping the cause that they're articulating mm. but we'll only learn that if we ourselves live lives in which we interact with people that we disagree with and nevertheless get along with them fine One of the great lessons of my childhood, which I am extremely grateful for, was that when my grandmother got older, she moved from the house—the bigger house that she lived in—into the house, little cottage next door, and she sold the big house to a man who was a member of the British Parliament and was very right-wing, and uh, but extremely nice, <laughs> and and very nice to me. And I was a young, you know, I I was I had a subscription to this the Soviet news and the Peking Review, I was a young lefty, um, but he was incredibly nice to me. And and he was not only nice to me, he was willing to talk to me about politics. And he was willing to let an 18-year-old, whatever I was, uh, young man, talk to him about politics and say things that he obviously thought were, you know, and he told me what he thought. He was frank. I mean, he didn't pretend to believe things that he didn't believe. I learned a lot. I learned that I had to admit that I liked this guy, (laughs) even though I thought he was wrong about everything. Um, And and that was luck. It was luck that I had that experience when I was young. Um, But I think that we could try and arrange our world so that more of us had that sort of experience more of the time, and especially we could try and arrange Washington so that people could behave in the way that I'm told senators used to behave.
0: Right. I know. We all hear this now. You know, here's something you wrote that I I also found just great, um, kind of inspiring to think about, to shift one's imagination. You said, often enough, as Faust said, in the beginning is the deed. Practices Mm -hmm. and not principles are what enable us to live together in peace. Conversations across boundaries of identity, whether national, religious, or something else, Begin with the sort of imaginative engagement you get when you read a novel or watch a movie or attend to a work of art that speaks from someplace other than your own. That's a more exciting image than forming earnest (laughs) discussion groups in neighborhoods somehow.
1: It is. And I think Mm -hmm. that literal conversation is one thing, but I feel more in touch with, say, the situation in Iraq than I otherwise would because I've seen a few Iraqi movies mm. not movies about politics or about war though I have seen some of those but just movies about life mm. that uh, I you know I I as I say I wish I spent more of my time around people that disagreed with me more about <laughs> about <laughs> politics but I do at least try to read and understand and to watch people making arguments that I know I'm not going to like or agree with I you know years ago when I was living in in Boston well, I'm, I'm going to forget her name the the woman who who uh, reshaped American cooking Julia child oh yes
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh she, Julia Ch- this I forget when this was but say this so sort of 10 15 years ago she was older at that point and her husband had died but uh, she was worried about um the state of sort of Race discussions hmm. in society. So, what did she do, being Julia Child? She summoned a group of people to come and have dinner and talk about it, <laughs> and uh, at her house in in Cambridge. And so, you know, it's a kind of mixed race group around the table. Um, that's uh, you know, most of us can't do that. You can't just yeah, summon. But people. we might
0: do be able to do our <laughs> but, version of that.
1: But we could do we could do more of that. And look, um, one of the great privileges of a free society is that you don't have to spend all your time thinking about the government. And so you can easily have a life in which you do almost nothing except vote to participate in the life of the republic. And, and I understand why that is. And, um, but if we were to spend more of our time on the life of the republic, not directly you know, by focusing on having more and more political conversations in town halls and so on. But by getting together with people in our communities and talking about these things in a way that um, brought us to a, a deeper understanding of each other, uh, that, that would be well worth it, I think. Uh, right. And the Republic would work better because, because you would be thinking about Joe and Mary right. and not about conservative Republicans or liberal democrats and you would you would know that you knew some awfully nice people who were for some bizarre reason not convinced that you were completely correct about every political question
0: Swami Anthony Appiah is Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Philosophy and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. His books include Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in a World of Strangers, and The Honor Code, How Moral Revolutions Happen. Our thought experiment this week is to draw on your own memories of a simple human encounter, unlikely relationships with non-like-minded people that you may not have pondered before as formative and important. Anthony Appiah's story about his neighbor also got us wondering about how we might encourage or inspire these kinds of encounters in our own lives or for our children. Send us your thoughts at unbeing.org. And on our website, you'll find all the other voices in the Civil Conversations Project, ideas and tools for healing our fractured civic spaces. Evangelical educator Richard Mao asks, How can we find new ways to speak and listen to each other, even while holding passionate disagreements? And from another place on the American cultural spectrum, longtime abortion rights activist Frances Kissling describes her adventures creating a whole new kind of relationship and dialogue with her political opposites. Use these shows and transcripts as resources for new conversations in your family and community, and tell us what happens. Find it all at onbeing.org, and consider joining the rich community of dialogue on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com onbeing. Follow us on Twitter at beingtweets. On Being On Air and Online is produced by Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Dave McGuire, and Stephanie Bell. Trent Gillis is our senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett.
1: On Being is a Krista Tippett public production distributed by American Public Media and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation
0: next time, philosopher and Catholic social innovator Jean Vanier. He's considered by some to be a living saint. He created a community centered around people with mental disabilities, L'Arche, that has become a global movement spanning 40 countries. That's the next on Being. Please join us.